This is a Federal News Network podcast. The White House's climate goal to reach a net zero carbon emissions economy by 2050 hinges in part on federal government's ability to use its buying power as a lever. Acquisition regulation language is already changing to reflect this policy priority, including the buying of information technology. Federal News Network's digital editor Amelia Brust has more. The Biden administration wants agencies to be a model for industry when it comes to environmental sustainability. In terms of federal procurement, that includes areas like vehicles, sustainable building materials, and technology purchases, baking new requirements into contracting language that outlines things like greenhouse gas emissions disclosures and the environmental impact of manufacturing can make these climate goals more long-lasting, and it can set expectations for vendors to invest in greener products and services. The General Services Administration is front-row center for this shift. Laura Stanton, Assistant Commissioner for IT Category at GSA, says she sees a bigger transition from physical electronics hardware to cloud computing and as-a-service models for enterprise IT infrastructure needs. Um, The contract obligation data through the business volume data that we analyze. And a greater reliance on this industry-provided infrastructure through cloud and other as-a-service solutions inherently consolidates and shrinks the overall footprint of those government data centers and reduces the government's consumption of raw materials and energy. And this Stanton is- says GSA added sustainability requirements to the contract for enterprise infrastructure solutions for network infrastructure, and it added to the contract for complex commercial satellite communications solutions. These new requirements span things like energy efficiency, streamlined technology that supports agile networks, and the mitigation of climate risks to land-based equipment that satellites use. She says GSA is especially leaning in on the Alliant 2 contract, for example. We're also looking, and I've talked about as a service, this is really where we're leaning in. And we're requiring through this contract greenhouse gas emissions disclosures and reduction targets from, its, from our contractor pool. And this is something that's actually a contract deliverable. So we're intending as we roll, as we move in, we're in the middle of market research for the Alliant 3 government-wide acquisition contract. And as we move forward, we are looking to continue this practice in gathering those greenhouse gas emissions disclosures as we go into the next generation of the Alliant program. As for its newest cloud-focused blanket purchase agreement, Ascend, which was announced last week, Stanton said GSA is still in the market research phase, but they hope it will make cloud solutions less burdensome for agencies to adopt. Fewer raw materials is a common advantage of cloud computing cited by procurement and IT leaders. More cloud means more demand for data centers, and those aren't exactly energy efficient. In fact, data centers consume about 2% of electricity in the U.S., or about 10 to 50 times the energy per floor space of a typical office building. That's why Brian Anderson, who is the director of the National Energy Technology Laboratory, says data centers can and should pull double duty. Take the Mineral Gap Data Center in Wise County, Virginia, as an example. Uh, southwestern Virginia, south of West Virginia, and, uh, and, and it is really, it is coal country in, in Wise County. And Wise County has been affected uh, historically by the coal industry's decline, and in the project, the Mineral Gap Data Center used a reclaimed mine site to build uh, what truly is a 24th, 21st century data center. It's powered by a solar array, it's, it's supporting the community, it created new jobs, as also supported by clean energy. And it really showed an investment, not only uh, the investment in the data center itself, 
but the idea of taking a reclaimed mine, uh, taking an area that has uh, seen a environmental disruption uh, and reclaiming it into the next generation of technologies is what's truly exciting. And certainly, Anderson says there's a unique opportunity for the Energy Department to leverage the funds that were appropriated to Interior under the Abandoned Mine Land Reclamation Program in the Infrastructure Bill. His and three other federal labs formed the Net Zero Lab Initiative to reduce their infrastructure emissions to net zero over the next decade. That includes emissions both directly and indirectly caused by lab activity. So our four laboratories are going to be taking our infrastructure, scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions to net zero uh, over the coming decade. And so we will be working not only on-site, decarbonizing our on-site usage, but with our uh, power supply partners on driving forward the, the technologies that we have been developing in-house in the Department of Energy with our partners. And this is the call. Aside from greener buildings, agencies are also encouraged to consider greener IT. And that means considering the entire life cycle of the technology they buy, from raw mineral extraction to labor conditions along the supply chain and the efficiency of the hardware itself. The EPA's Energy Star program certifies IT, and Ryan Fogel, Energy Star's data center, product development, and marketing manager, says the savings from an energy-efficient server can be tremendous and quick. In that use phase. Um, so being able to buy a more efficient uh, server, in this case, an Energy Star server, is a, is a huge benefit. An Energy Star server saves on average about 30% of the energy compared to a non-certified server. And this equates to roughly 650 kilowatt hours per year on, on average. There's no real price premium to go from an Energy Star product to an, or from a non-certified product to an Energy Star product. Um, so those, those savings and the payback is, is essentially immediate. He explains that servers' efficiency is measured while they're in their active state. So how much work can you get done per watt of energy? which means that you, in essence, can complete more work with less hardware. So one of the important things um, that we've been trying to emphasize lately is that those have knock-on benefits that can also save um, on the budget side of things, too. So if you, you know, can do more work with less energy, that means that there's potentially less servers that you need to do to get that same amount of work done. Less servers tends to mean that there's less support dollars needed for things like licensing and software fees. EPA and GSA have several online tools and contracting advice to help agencies jumpstart their procurement of greener IT, including the Sustainable Facilities Tool and the GSA Advantage Catalog. I'm Amelia Brust for Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Amelia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about 
them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching you. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at pluralsight.com vision. 
Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.